Douglas Twitchell from South Paris in Maine, the United States of America. He tells an interesting story about Duncan on his internet blog. Now, Duncan is not a person, nor is Duncan a donut, for that matter, but a dog. And he belongs to Dave, who is a director at the Camp Fair Haven in Maine. And in the story, Twitchell says, I've never seen a dog quite like Duncan. I've never seen a dog so devoted to his master. If Dave is in the camp office, Duncan will stand just outside the office door and he will stare at him. Doesn't matter if Dave is there for up to three hours, Duncan is content to stare for three hours. Duncan, he wrote, follows Dave everywhere. Once when Dave ended up on the opposite side of the lake from Duncan, Duncan didn't wait for Dave to come around and get him. He swam all the way across the lake to get back to Dave. Then he said, if I opened the door of my car, Dave opened the door of his truck, I have no doubt which vehicle Duncan would get in. If I stood there and called him by name, I still have no doubt what vehicle he would get into. And if I stood there and called him by name while holding a doggy treat in my hand for him, there is absolutely no doubt that he would still get in Dave's truck instead of my car. And then he concludes, that is devotion, pure and simple and wholehearted devotion, it most certainly is. Now, that's the type that God demands. Writing through the pen of Moses, first in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and the verse 5, we're told there that in our devotion we are to be wholehearted with respect to the Lord. And thou shalt, we read there, love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. In other words, if we're looking for a measuring stick, a yardstick, some kind of a way whereby we are trying to work out what does God require of me, well, the same kind of love and devotion that Duncan had towards Dave. No one else should be able to get in there and steal our attention or siphon off our devotion from the Lord. But how often does the devil hold out a doggy treat of temptation to us and say, here, this is the way, come this direction, and we have no qualms about getting on board with him, do we? The Lord Jesus pressed this same issue of wholehearted devotion through his ministry. In Matthew chapter 22 and verse 34 to 40, we have one illustration of that. And in the introduction to the passage in verse 34, we read, but when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. What's happening here? Well, the Pharisees have got the news that our Lord has ended the arguments of the Sadducees. 
He has left them without a leg to stand on. And so they figure, opportunity knocks here. Since the Sadducees have been humiliated by Jesus, if we get in as the Pharisees, and if we get the better of him, and if we can tempt him and tease him and cause him to trip up in what we bring to him, then we will rise to the upper hand in all of our society. Above Jesus, above the Sadducees, we Pharisees will be seen to be the really clever people. So they prompted a lawyer to come and ask Jesus a question. And in verse 36, the question is asked, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, even though the Pharisees believed they had to keep the law to be saved, and they'd added and added and added to that law down through the generations, they were still clever enough to realize nobody can fully keep the law of God. So some of them decided, if we can find just one good law, and we keep that one good law, then we'll be all right. And they're simply asking, which law is the best one to keep? And our Lord answered the lawyer's question in verse 37 through 40. We have the detail in Matthew 22. And what he did in answering the question was to showcase the concept of love in relation to the law. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. He's quoting Moses here in Deuteronomy, as you'll recognize, having just mentioned that. This, he said, is the first and the great commandment, and the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, if we set that up as our true target. If this is what we are wanting to do, loving the Lord our God with all of our soul and mind and strength and our heart, and then loving our neighbor as ourselves, as per our Lord's instruction here, we'll not be continuing in sin if we could manage to do that. Why? Because we wouldn't be violating God and we wouldn't be violating our neighbor. This would take care of all of that. Love then, our Savior's teaching, fulfills it all. And what Moses taught in Deuteronomy 6 and 5, and what Jesus taught here in Matthew 22, 34 to 14, we have Paul in a parallel passage in the book of Romans, chapter 13, verse 8 through to the verse 10, and Paul is emphasizing the same truth over there. Owe no man anything, he says, but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Isn't it rather amazing that a passage like that can sit in the Bible and be there all this time and not really attract much or regular attention? In other words, what we are told here is we don't need a commandment that says, don't murder your neighbor if you love your neighbor. 
We don't need a commandment that tells us don't covet if we love the person who owns the things that we don't have. And so both of the passages, Matthew 22 from our Lord's lips, Paul writing here under the inspiration of God in Romans 13, they are essentially saying the same, and it's this, to simplify your entire life up on earth, Love God and love your neighbor, and you'll have precious little else to worry about in your interactions between heaven and earth. We could further press the same lesson in 1 Timothy 1 and 5. Now, the end of commandment, that's the reason, the objective, the target, the point of it all is charity out of a pure heart. So God, again, is trying to get us to love. And Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16 and 14, let all your things be done with charity. Now, I, for one, will emphasize God's truth. And how men have come to the Word of God and tried to put into a system what they find taught in Scripture, and so we get into the realm of theology there, but I realize... Having a proper theology is no substitute for love. Engaging even in much activity and what is called service cannot substitute for love. Selective affection or favoritism, attraction to certain people and not to others, is no substitute for a widespread love and immaturity or ignorance. You can't come along and plead that I'm not properly developed in the Christian life. I don't know enough about God and about His Word. You can't plead that as an excuse not to practice love. And so the real key is what our title of the series has been to learn how to love with the highest form of love, that agape love that we have talked about in the past here that we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And to begin with, we get into verse 1 through 3. That was the primacy of love. And then we moved in time to the profile of love in verse 4 through to the verse 7. And already we've covered this territory, the features of love, its profile, how it's delineated here and described for us in all of its many facets. Love is patient, because charity suffereth long. Love is kind, and is kind, the Bible says. It is not jealous, because it doesn't envy. It's not pride, it doesn't vaunt itself. It's not conceited, the word here is not puffed up. It's not graceless or rude, because it does not behave itself unseemly. It's not selfish, Paul writes, love seeketh not her own. Then again, it's not angry, because it's not easily provoked. Does not think evil, thinketh no evil doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rather, other side of the coin, rejoiceth in the truth. And so we have got to the point where four qualities of this love remain. And all of them are in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 13. They are these beareth all things, that to do with all things here you'll see, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. And those qualities, it's as if you're going up steps. They're ascending, building one upon the other, and they're 
very much tied together. They're associated maybe more so than any of the other qualities in the list of 15 that are the features of love here. We're going to consider one of these four this morning and probably next Lord's Day, the remaining three. Love beareth all things. Love beareth all things. The identification of this activity of love here. This word beareth is a tremendous word. It points up a glorious truth. What it means is it covers with silence. It suppresses. Now, you can find various shades of the meaning of the word as used in the New Testament, but primarily, first of all, first port of call is it means to cover with silence or it means to suppress. It does not mean that love puts up with anything and gets shoved around and pushed about because of a lack of solidity or a lack of dignity. It's not acting in weakness here. What it does do, it acts out of a regard, a respect, a concern for the real value of that other person, and it will do everything it can to cover up and suppress the sin of that person. Here's what it does. Genuine love is reluctant to drag a scandal about anyone into public view. So when Paul says here that love beareth all things, he's not talking about what we might think when we first read it, holding up under some kind of a heavy trial. Rather, he's talking about covering up the ugliness in someone else's life. Is that a challenge? Well, what's our natural response? It's normal for depravity that's in us all to want to uncover everybody else's evil because that ultimately makes us feel better about ourselves and rather self-righteous. And we don't do that. Look what he's done. Look what she's had. It's natural to uncover it. Otherwise, newspapers wouldn't sell in the way that they do. Magazines wouldn't sell. TV shows, all of this personal material just wouldn't have an airing. The Nolan show just wouldn't have any life in it. The internet would be completely flat and dead. And who wants to read all information about National Geographic and all of that when you can get all the items of juicy gossip that are out there? And that's why our bookstores are filled with exposes. What about it? The recent release, Spare, by Prince Harry. Sold almost one and a half million copies in the English language on the first day it was published. Revelations and accusations, they have been splashed all across the media. Am I tuned into them? No, I want nothing at all to do with it. I don't want to read it. I don't want to hear all of this nonsense either. This is all it is. It's not love bearing all things. It's love revealing everything it can reveal. And it's not love at all. It's just hatefulness, bitterness, 
And Harry tells us he has enough material for two memoirs, but I've held back because I didn't think my father or my brother would even would ever forgive me if I give more information. He said, I'm not trying to collapse the monarchy. This is about trying to save them from themselves. How noble. He's venting his resentment, though, at being, and this is why the title of the book is, What It Is, Sperm. He's the spare to the heir. And he's saying, you know, William's children, one of them at least, is going to find out that they'll be in the same situation as me. One of them will be prominent. The other will be relegated. And I tell you, being relegated to the spare is a difficult position to fill. And so I need to tell it as it all is. Love beareth all things. Well, that's certainly not what's happening all around us. Depravity is forever sniffing around to find the skeleton or skeletons in somebody else's closet because, as we've said, it gives when you discover it that sense of self-righteousness. I am better than they are. Children are a wonderful illustration of this. They come into the world like we all do, depraved. And one of the first manifestations of the depravity, even in a child, is the eagerness with which they want to tell tales on their brothers and sisters. And a child will come and they'll say, uh, Do you know what so and so is doing? Or someone's just writing on the wall, or jumping up and down in the bed, or switching on and off the TV. Now, if they happen to be switching the TV on and leave it on the channel the other child wants to see, there won't be any problem or I groom, but because it's they're watching something they want to watch, not what I want to watch, then the tales are told. That's pretty typical. Why? Because depravity is always trying to uncover somebody else so that it can take that sense of self-respect and self-gratification and self-righteousness to itself. And sad to say, some people never grow out of this. They spend their whole lifetime spreading stories about others. Really, gossips are hard to abide so negative about everybody else, so positive about themselves. And when you take the material away and siphon through it, you think how nauseating all of that is. Love, on the contrary, beareth all things. Those Corinthians that Paul is writing to here, they didn't know what it meant to cover sin. They exposed everybody. In chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians 1, we find that if somebody offended one of them, what did he do? They dragged him into the court, set them up publicly before a pagan judge and said, sort it all out. Our natural response. But our new response and that's what Paul is arguing for. Love does not do this. Love takes a cloak and it throws it over the faults and the weaknesses and the sins of others. And Paul isn't the only one to argue in the Bible along this particular line. Back in the book of Proverbs, we have Solomon in his wisdom and he's writing, Hatred stirreth up strifes, but love 
covereth all sins. And in the New Testament, we have the Apostle Paul and in Peter, and in 1 Peter 4, the verse 8, he says, and above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. So he's going down the line that Paul had adopted here. Have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity, what will it do? What's its activity? Shall cover the multitude of sins. So if we can picture it today, love, true love, is this huge blanket that runs around, throwing itself over people's faults. Have you ever discovered how easy it is to dismiss the faults of those that you love? They do something wrong and you say, oh, well, that's fine. Everybody makes mistakes. Sure, you can't expect them to be right all the time. But how do we respond? When it's somebody who we don't particularly like who's doing something wrong, the same thing. Great. You can say under your breath. Why is that? Because you want them. You're willing them to do that thing that is wrong so that they can look bad and you can spread the news. But love covers rather than spreads. Now, that does not mean that love is approving the sin. And it does not mean that love is ignoring the sin because love will warn and exhort and rebuke and discipline, but love will also, here's Paul's point, cover the sin, not expose it. That's a beautiful characteristic of what real love is. Then we have the illustration of this activity of love. One illustration that we find in Scripture, a passage we don't often refer to, is back in Genesis, chapter 9 and verse 23. And while Ham, glory dinner, remember hearing Pastor Mullen on this, I think it was when he was preaching in Revelation 17. And he delved into this passage as one of his starting points and gave his explanation there. But we have the sin of Ham here in glorying in the shame and the sin of his father. But we have Shem and Japheth and they take a covering. They go in backwards and they make sure they cover over their father while not looking at him in the middle of his shame. Love beareth all things. It provides a cloak over that shame. But the best illustration in the Bible that I can direct you to on this particular issue is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. God loved us, but He didn't sit up in heaven and say, you know, those human beings are terribly sinful. What do you angels think about them? How do you weigh and measure them? He didn't stage a kind of a roundtable discussion among the angels, other creatures, and say, well, what's your best thought on this instead? God said, because they are totally depraved, can't save themselves, can't stop sinning, never will. I'm going to take my big blanket and go down and cover the sin." of my chosen people. And that's what he did on Calvary. First John 4 and 10 explains what took place there. Herein is love. Not that we love God. Not in the slightest did we love God. And we can't in our natural condition at any rate. But he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Big word, propitiation. What does it mean? It means what we're talking about here, covering, covering. 
Christ Jesus provided the covering, is the covering for our sin. In 1918, the Lord brought a couple who were very highly respected and admired and even lovingly called by all who knew them, Ma and Pa. And he brought them to lead the work in Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago in the state of Illinois. Walter G. Taylor and his wife, Ethelwyn faithfully served the Lord at that Pacific Garden mission through the roaring 20s right up to Pa Taylor's retirement in 1936. During their time there on the 30th of January, 1923, so essentially and nearly exactly 100 years ago, the Pacific Garden mission moved due to the shifting of what they called the hobo jungle, moved to South State Street, that area of Chicago, just south of the loop, was referred to as the murderer's row because so many people had been killed in that area in recent years. 5,000 men flopped down nightly in cheap hotels along the room, and the devil was reigning supreme peddling his wares in the most brazen manner imaginable. And this mission found its new home right in the center of Satan's stronghold in a three-story building that formerly had housed what was called the notorious White House, a den of drunkenness and immorality. But in this new place, under new management, Pa and Ma Taylor, men would be offered overnight accommodations as well as food. And Pa's famous foghorn voice stopped many a derelict dead in his tracks, turned him in through the mission's doorway, and ultimately to Christ and to heaven. And as Pa preached the gospel and told men and women how to find forgiveness of sin through Christ alone, Ma prayed for the outcasts of society who were filling up their mission auditorium. And then when the invitation was given at the end of all the meetings, Ma went up and played the piano. During their work in this area, a gospel song was written by Ma Taylor. And it was based upon the testimony of one of the men who had come through that mission and before Christ found him and saved him was as black as midnight. And that was a song that Helen sang this morning. Far dearer than all that the world can impart was the message that came to my heart how that Jesus alone for my sin did atone, and Calvary covers it all. The stripes that he bore and the thorns that he wore told his mercy and love evermore, and my heart bowed in shame as I called on his name, and Calvary covers it all. How matchless the grace when I looked in the face of this Jesus, my crucified Lord, my redemption complete, I then found at his feet, and Calvary covers it all. 
And this same man's thought, final verse, how blessed the thought that my soul by him bought shall be his in the glory on high, where with gladness and song I'll be one of the throng, and Calvary covers it all. Calvary covers it all, my past, with its sin and stain, my guilt and despair. Jesus took on him there, and Calvary covers it all. That's what God does through Christ. And so, in conclusion, this love of His shrouds our sins. He's not in the business of exposing our sin, but in the business of covering the sin into that cross. He approached through a mantle over my sin, bare, his own, bare in His own body my sin. That's what love does. Shrouds our sins, sympathizes with us in our sins. Didn't Isaiah the prophet write in that great evangelistic passage, Isaiah 53, the verse 4 and 5, surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, but He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And love will go beyond this, throwing a blanket over sin, sympathetic and feeling the pain, enduring the agony, doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Love will bear it. And when a brother or sister sins, love will feel the pain. If I love that person, I'll hurt for them. That's why I'll not prattle about their sin or expose it to others. Love is willing to bear the pain. Henry Ward Beecher was a famous American congregationalist preacher. And when crowds were flocking to Spurgeon in London in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, all of the UK and part of America too would have been hook, line, and sinker, I want to hear Spurgeon in America. Largely, they wanted to hear Henry Ward Beecher. In fact, the person who created that, you know, the Mount Rushmore Memorial, the heads of the presidents, he sculpted a statue, the same person of Beecher, and it stands in the garden of the Plymouth Church in Brooklyn Heights. But here's what I want you to remember. Beecher quite beautifully said, God pardons like a mother who kisses the offense into everlasting forgetfulness. He says, your sins and your iniquities will I remember no more. This is what God does, not only throws a blanket over sin, sympathizes with us in our inability to break from that sin, love suffers for our sins, paid the price, because bearing all things involves suffering for someone's sin, willing to take the consequence of sin, endure the suffering. That's the hub of Calvary. That's the heart of the gospel, substitution, because there our Lord didn't simply throw a mantle over sin, just feel sympathetic about it. He bore our sins in His own body and took the entire penalty for those iniquities. In Cromwellian, England, a soldier had been condemned to die by execution. 
at the ringing of the curfew bell. The soldier was engaged to be married to a beautiful young woman with tears. She came along, she pleaded with a judge, and she made representation to Oliver Cromwell to spare the life of her fiancé, but it was all in vain. All the preparations for the, for the execution had been made. The city was just waiting for the signal coming from the bell at curfew time, and the sexton, who was old and deaf, he threw himself against the rope to ring the bell as he'd done for many, many years. And he pulled and he pulled and he pulled it, thinking it's ringing but not realizing no sound is coming from the bell. What happened was this. That girl had climbed to the top of the belfry and reached out and caught and held onto the tongue of the huge bell at the risk of her life. And as the sexton rang it, pulling the rope, she was smashed against the sides of the bell, but the bell stayed silent. Eventually, that bell stopped swinging. She managed to get down from the tower, all wounded and bleeding. Cromwell, the story goes, waiting at the place of execution, asked, why hasn't the bell rung? The girl arrived, explained her story, told him all that she had done, and the poet put down the record of that incident and said, at his feet she told her story, showed her hands all bruised and torn, and her sweet young face still haggard with the anguish it had worn, touched his heart with sudden pity, lit his eyes with misty light. Go! Your lover lives, said Cromwell. Curfew shall not ring tonight. That's a picture of someone who has gone to the place where love goes. Threw a mantle over sin, felt sympathetic for sin, to take the punishment, the sentence for sin, somebody else's sin. Love that bears all things, suppresses someone else's sin, sympathizes with them in their sin, suffers if they can. To what extent? Because this can sound all wonderful, but to what extent do we bear the pain to cover someone's sin? Do we really cover other people's evil? Or do we kind of take a delight in it and love to declare it? Love does not. Charity beareth all things. And God through Paul is saying to you and to me, so should you. Love beareth all things. We'll turn to the hymn 113, but first we'll pray. Then our communion season will be ongoing. Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee for Thy mercy and Thy grace, for Thy Word. And we pray it'll reach into our heart and touch our soul today. And may it have a practical, practical bearing upon the way in which we live. To our Savior's glory, walking in His footsteps, following His pattern, we pray we will walk that way too, for Jesus' sake. Amen.